Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Beginning of Matter in the Land of Oz. <laughs> Man, this show always goes off without a hitch. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm Jess. I'm Alan. And we're your hosts. Uh, we are currently on our South Australian season. If you're just joining us today, um, you should go back and listen to the older seasons because they're really good too. Yeah, they're just, they're so high quality, especially uh, yeah. our first couple of episodes where we really knew what we were doing. Yeah, I actually have to say, I still think Alison Baden-Clay is one of our better episodes. I think it's our, probably our best. It, it, it kind of is like a heart monitor after that. <laughs> it's up and down. There are a few flat lines. Then there are There's like some spikes where you think that somebody's going to die. <laughs> and indeed, lots of people do die. This is a murder show. This is a murder podcast. Um, speaking of uh, the murder of Alison Bed and Clay, some exciting news, guys, that happened on Monday. It was so fucking cool. I went to the herbarium. Uh, well, not to the herbarium. I went to um, the Eco Sciences Building and I got to meet Dr. Gordon Geimer, who was the, um, the botanist involved in the um, – the oh god I've lost the words now um he determined the six species of hair uh, six species of plants that were found in Alison Baden Clay's hair and um we had a lovely subscriber Jess uh, you can find her on Instagram at Green Thumbo I have uh, shouted her out before but I actually shouted out the wrong name savage um so savage <laughs> um Jess reached out to me and said that she uh, worked with Dr Geimer. So then I hurriedly um, organised some Botany Solves crime T-shirts. And then, yeah, I got to deliver them in person to Jess and to Dr. Geimer. And it was very sweet. Um, Dr. Geimer is as sweet as pie. Um, I have a very cute photo of him holding up his shirt as we were sitting down having coffee. Um, and Jess is beautiful too. Her partner also works, Ellen, I didn't get to tell you this. He works in like forensic data. Oh, my God, that's so cool. Yeah, so she mentioned what a power that he, couple. like, I know, right? What strength. Love that yeah, for them. Yeah, amazing. So, um, happy so for she meant, exactly. Um, she mentioned that her partner often flies out on cases. And yeah, and she's also just recently signed up to be a volunteer for the police as well. So that means um, she 
hopefully, I, I think she's still waiting to hear on like the selection process and stuff like that. But that basically means is that she is like bringing awareness to the community about like crime stoppers and stuff like that. And like doing like fighting the good fight and doing some really good stuff in the name of justice. That's incredible. Jess is like the most amazing person I've never met. I know. And she's stunning too, which is just, you know, she's just the full package. Oh my God. Do you think she'll be like the third person on our show? I don't know. Jess, let us know. Yeah. We've assembled like so many like ladies that have just been listening to this podcast. Like men, stunning men too. But like a lot of like really really stunning people. We have had like an outpouring of like incredibly talented, smart women who have like given us information like... Um, about cases that we didn't know or, like, offered, like, their services to us and things like that. And I'm like, damn, all these people are so much more, like, intelligent than we are. I know. We are – it makes us feel inferior. but Super like, inadequate, good, but also, like, very super lucky. Super inadequate. Yeah, exactly. No, we uh, totally acknowledge how bloody stoked we are at, like, all the people that are listening. Speaking of – um. <laughs> Just to, just to get negative, but we will get to the case in a second, but I've just got some beef. Um, literally, I have Masaman beef to my right and also <laughs> also some emotions. Um, we're getting a lot of uh, reviews calling me shrill and saying that I shriek. I have to say I am full of myself. I will own that that was said in the review um, and I do like the sound of my own voice. Um, so I do listen back to episodes and I don't actually think I shriek that much. So you're boring. You stop it, please. (laughs) Yeah, what he said, he said something, well, we had some review. I'm assuming it's a he because I assume everybody who's critical about women. Anyway, I'm not going to continue with that. Um, Yeah, he said, yeah, we sounded like a couple of immature teenagers that like the sound of our own voice. I hate the sound of my own voice. I'll I'll state that publicly. (laughs) Which is why I I will not listen to the podcast. Um, but I do think it's important to make the point that we're not journalists. Like, no, nobody from the ABC or not. the Telegraph or the Australian are, you know, doing the research for us on this show so we can read it out for you. We do it all ourselves in our free time and we're not experts yeah. and we are just, like, friends who like to talk about true crime. And if that's not the kind of podcast you want to listen to, that's fine. Um, if you want to listen to Case File do it yeah. it's a great time i do think it's a bit harsh to make such personal comments about us when we're just having fun trying our best living our lives it doesn't need to get personal it doesn't need to be mean we don't mind if you don't listen to the podcast we're not, oh yeah we're and not if gonna find got, you if you've got constructive criticism or if you have facts that maybe we didn't get right or um you know anything like that like actual constructive criticism instead of just actually being negative about this i mean as i said to ellen and as i said to podcast producer zane if you look at the graphic of this podcast, it's pink. Mm. There is a unicorn on there. Ellen is wearing Minnie Mouse ears and drinking a Frappuccino. You won't see this from the photo, but the bag that I'm carrying on my right shoulder in this photo is actually a bag in the shape of a popcorn bucket. <laughs> that's, this is where we're at. This is who we are. That's who's delivering this content. Let's keep our expectations low. Exactly. We do what we do, and if you enjoy it, we're very happy to have you. Um, Speaking of people that we're happy to have, we need to shout out some uh, Patreons, and that's Graham and Regan. Shout out to Graham. I messaged Graham, and I've had a bit of a back and forth on the Patreon. He's such an awesome guy. Thank you so much for being a Patreon, Um, and he said that 
he gave us a, a, a suggestion for an episode and he said he'll be crying along with us as we cry. So thanks. Thank you for your manly tears, Graham. And shout out to Regan as well. Thank you for becoming a Patreon. We love you. Thank you for joining the team. Helping us pay for our resources, which are coming in quick and fast, yes. mates. I've, yes. Because we need to figure out, because obviously we're in South Australia now. Yeah. So I assume we're going to go to WA next. Yeah. I love that we haven't like. <laughs> oh, nothing is planned out in yeah, advance. No, 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 no. No. Um, so, yeah, then we need to figure out Northern Territory, obviously. If there's any in Canberra, I doubt it. No, there is one. But, um, but there's one I'm saving up. Oh, yes. That's, that's, yes, yes, yes. No, you've told me about that tizzy one. Yeah. Um, and then we need to circle back, I guess. Yeah. Go to New Zealand. Definitely New Zealand. We've gotten so many requests for New Zealand cases on mm. Patreon. Um, I haven't decided whether or not they'll be Patreon onlys or if they will be full episodes yet. Oh, so if you want to hear some New Zealand stuff, maybe you'll have to become a Patreon. Or maybe you won't. Maybe. Or maybe you won't. Who knows? We haven't made our minds up yet. We never do. Because what about yeah, the okay. episode that's coming up in about five seconds, Jess? Okay. So we're in South Australia, dolls. Now, this I actually remember to some extent. Right. So I don't think I remember the 1999 part of this case, but I definitely remember the 2001 right. part of this case. So... Um, tonight I'm going to be talking about a man called Mark Aaron Rust. Mm-hmm. So let's let's jet back. Let's 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 take a time machine back to April twelfth, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, thirty year old Croatian immigrant Maya Jakic was walking along Paynham Road, which is about a five kilometer. It's five kilometers northeast from the CBD of Adelaide. Her friends described her as quiet polite she mostly kept to herself she didn't have many friends and she didn't mix well with a lot of people that sounds like me um yeah god Uh, her close friends and relatives thought that she might have been suffering from depression around this time as well ellen just choked on her water (laughs) sorry everything is fine uh five days later on april 17th 1999 a note was left on a patrol car a police patrol car, that is, um, telling them that they would find a body at the disused Paynham police station. The body that was found was found in an advanced state of decomposition. Her jeans had been pulled down and her underwear removed. There was suggestion that they had been um, that she had been sexually sexually assaulted and strangled with her own clothing being used as a ligature. Dr. Ross James, who was the forensic pathologist from 1978 to 2002 in South Australia, was on the case um, because of the state of decomposition. Oh, good. Good. Yep. Thank you, Word document. Love that. Great. Um, because of the state of the, of the decomposition with the body, it was determined – they weren't able to determine who the Jane Doe was or indeed how long she had been dead. Um, to establish the time of death, Dr. James um, needed the help of a forensic entomologist because of the insect activity on the body. Yikes. So basically, um, the forensic entomologist, Dr. James Wallman, who if you could picture in your minds with us, ladies and gentlemen, what a forensic entomologist looks like, mm-hmm. Dr. James Wallman looks exactly like that Sick. stereotype. 
Very clever. Um, so he determined that the insect activity began on the body on the morning of the 13th of April um, 1999, meaning that the victim had possibly been killed the night before, five days. So she, um, so the insect, acti- uh, insect activity started on the 13th of April. Um, she was found on the 17th. Mm-hmm. So she was most probably killed the evening of the 12th. So this was five days before um, the body had been found. There were no personal effects with the body, but the deceased had three missing teeth and gold restorations, meaning that um, it was likely that they would be able to identify her through through dental dental records. records. Uh, She was described at um, 162 centimetres or five foot foot four inches tall with shoulder length blonde hair. Um, So being South Australia and what we've already talked about so far in this uh, wonderful state, uh, there were a few missing women uh, around at that time. I'm sure there Um, was. I'm sure there bloody was. Um, But... The defining, pe- the defining features and the dental work, um, it was determined that the victim indeed was 30-year-old Croatian immigrant Maya Jakic. So Maya had, hadn't been since since the 6th of April, which was six days before the entomologist had determined that she'd been killed. Um, police were trying to determine where she had been and who, had, who she had been seen with. Um, I got a lot of this information from from forensic investigation. I used to watch this show with my grandfather at the kitchen table. Um, and this season, like this might be when I remember watching it was this episode. Um, and Lisa McCune hosts it. So oh it God, must have been an, around, in and around the Blue Healers time. Yeah. Um, so on the forensic investigation, they spoke to Ida Gregov, who was a friend Um of a really, really good friend of Maya. Um, and Ida talked about in the, uh, the days previous to the body being discovered um, and the ident- like the identification of um, the body as Maya. Um, she talked about like speaking with um, Maya's mother and she said that where Maya was found, um, Maya's mother actually would have walked past the empty police base no. a couple of times a day without even knowing that her daughter was lying there um, dead and covered in branches. Um, so the police in the episode also talked about like the more and more that they tried to like look into what was going on with Maya at the time, like the less that they were sort of coming up with. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in the lead up to her murder in the months previous um, described her at like local shopping centers and stuff like that. But she was rarely seen with anybody. She was always on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came to the murder scene, there weren't any hairs, there weren't any fibers, but most importantly, there weren't any seminal fluids that could provide um, like the investigators with a DNA sample to determine the identity of the killer. But they were pretty sure that there had been a sexual assault as well just because of the way that um, she was found yeah exactly and like with her pants pulled down and her underwear removed mm-hmm. um also what sort of like threw a spanner in the works um was when this was a, when the murder had occurred um there was a event in town called the adelaide 500 which for uh, the people who don't know stuff about cars it's like um it's like the indie like yep. the gold coast indie like it's a big car car race. racing thing yeah so there were like people, people from all it. across, yeah. yeah. So people from all across the country, all across the world. So that meant like 
the suspect pool was like all of a Bigger. sudden huge because it literally could have been anybody. Did people really travel across the world to come to the Adelaide 500? Well, like there could be like some tizzy car driver that people want to see. Okay, sure. You never know. I don't understand other people's hobbies. I don't even understand mine, so it's all right. Here we are talking about murder at <laughs> 7.30 on a Sunday evening. No worries. Place to be. Um, exactly. Um, so as police were looking into um, the time that the entomologist and that the forensic pathologist had determined when um, Maya had been killed, um, they discovered a phone call had been made through to a police hotline and that had mentioned that someone was trying to break into the old Paynham police station. So obviously listening to the call, it's a bit sus. The operator is like on like the operator, even on the phone, which you can listen to snippets of the calls in the forensic investigation um, TV show, which we will link in the show notes. Um, You can tell that the operator is sort of like, um, you're sus. What's okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Um, Obviously this person like made themselves anonymous as well. They didn't say what their name was. Um, So police obviously believed that the caller definitely knew more than what they were letting on. So an hour after the first call, so we're looking at 11.52 p.m. on the night of the 12th of April, um, another call came through to an ambulance hotline mentioning that they had seen a body at the old Paynham police station. So... um, Obviously, both of these calls were taken seriously by police and ambulance and they went to the old Payne and police station and were looking around the property, but nothing was found and the calls were deemed um, deemed hoaxes. And then five days later, that's when the note appeared on the patrol car. But luckily... Because the note on the patrol car said old Payne and police station, but luckily the people who read the note, instead of going to the old police station, they went to a patrol base. Oh, so it wasn't actually a police station, it was no. a patrol base. So that's where the confusion, the came, confusion in. came in. So luckily they went to the police base and that's where they found Maya. Um, the police you know, determined that they thought the note and the two phone calls were all connected and were all made by the person that committed the murder. So the first phone call was made um, from a phone box because we're in 1999 and people didn't have... Mobile phones. Mobile phones. Um, A phone box which was literally like up the road from where Maya's body was discovered. And then the second was made at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, which is a fair ways away. Um, so what police decided to do, and they hadn't done this before in South Australia, and I don't know if they had done much of it in, in Australia, I'd say it's probably, it had probably been done overseas, but what they decided to do was actually release the hotline calls to the public Mm -hmm. so people could hear the voice. And if they recognized it, they could call the hotline and say, I think it's Ellen. Yeah. Me? I was only five. (laughs) And in Queensland. Um, yeah, God. Yeah. Un, un, un bloody likely, I'd say. Yeah. So they released it on um, local news programs um, and like the news presenters literally started off the bulletin being like, look, police have asked us to release this um, audio. Listen carefully. Um, they believe that this person has something to do with the murder of Maya Jackage. So um, – a lot of calls came in, obviously, um, but there were no solid. Um, there was no solid evidence to actually link anybody to anything because mm-hmm. there were a lot of people being like, "It was my neighbour," 
it was so-and-so, but not actually – like there just wasn't anything for them to go mm-hmm. on. Um, also, a $100,000 reward was posted for information into the murder of Maya, but once again, um, leads went cold. Um, so, police had, didn't really have anything to go on. Um, so, the case remained open, but it went cold. Um and it remained that way until two years later in 2001 and we move on to the disappearance of 18-year-old Japanese student Megumi Suzuki. So we're at Friday, um, August 3rd, 2001. Megumi is, last, uh, is seen leaving her housing at 7.41 in the morning. She then headed to school at Ainsbury College where she was seen leaving at 3.08 p.m. Um, her last movements uh, seen by people that she knew was that she was seen at Rundle Street Mall having, and she was having coffee with some friends. And then um, the last, pers- last of her friends that spoke to her um, told police that Megumi um, was getting on a bus and she was going back to where she was living. Um, Anne Wheaton, who – no, Anne Weiren, sorry – Anne um, was the international student advisor of Ainsbury College and she, um, after a few days, was a bit worried about Megumi. She didn't worry so much in the beginning because she knew that Megumi had like an on-again, off-again boyfriend. So she thought maybe Megumi had been staying Mm -hmm. with him. Um, But she was getting a bit worried when Megumi didn't show back up for uni. So um, she contacted uh, where Megumi was staying um, and basically Megumi hadn't returned home after that day on Friday. Um, so the bed looked like it hadn't been slept on. And the thing was, is that Friday when Megumi went missing was the night of the census. So everybody knows what a census is. You get counted and you have to like fill out this mm-hmm. form and it's a whole tizzy thing. Um, they, the census form was actually still on Megumi's bed. And hadn't been filled out. Right, so she's definitely not there. She definitely wasn't there. So um, Anne obviously is concerned about Megumi, so she contacts uh, Megumi's parents in Japan. Um, Megumi's mother said that um, said to Anne that Megumi would never like leave anywhere for an extended period of time without her teddy bear, and her teddy bear was still sitting on the bed waiting for her, which made Anne immediately worry. Mm Um, so then Anne contacted Megumi's uh, ex-boyfriend. So it's a little bit unclear of what this situation was, but I think that they, you know, had been together at some point, but they were still friends or something. So she contacted Megumi's ex and he said that he was also worried about her because he hadn't heard from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after all these lines of inquiry, um, and was like, nope, okay, something's wrong. And then she contacted the police. So that was the following Thursday after Megumi went missing on the 3rd. That was six days later? Yeah. Oh. I think she was, yeah. I mean, look, I can kind of understand it with uni students and stuff like that, especially with the comings and goings. Yeah. Like, you never know. She could have been staying with friends. But I think Anne basically exhausted all of her contacts she probably – I would say she would have talked to everybody because, like, I if you think back to – 2001, when, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, then. And also, like, when you're a uni student, like, m- probably would have been different for us, Ellen, because, like, you and I both lived at home when we studied. But if you're, you know, in a place that you if don't really college, know – Yeah, and don't know Yeah, and you're staying in a college, like, who knows? Maybe she had a fight with somebody yeah. on the floor, so she wanted to go and stay with somebody else. Yeah. So I think, yeah – 
a bit no judgment bit, to Anne, like, obviously no did judgment to Anne. everything that she, she did everything that she could but, oh you know when those first couple of hours are so important it's so important exactly right and also it's probably that thing that Anne's heard over and over and over again of people being like oh well they have to be missing for such hours and such. or whatever which yeah, is you know? completely untrue in all jurisdictions exactly so um and let uh police know the following thursday after megumi was last seen um so obviously you've got a case of a missing student police weren't really sure if they were you know just dealing with a um missing persons or you know god forbid that they were dealing with a homicide case mm-hmm. um so then a man who actually worked along um the busway where megumi's bus went he actually found her handbag. So in her handbag, her ID was present and her books. And like this was a really big indication to police that um, Megumi's disappearance was, you know, even more suspicious, mm-hmm. like that there was something going on. So um, the 15th of August, um, helicopters and dog squads start searching around the area from where Megumi's bag was found. Um, her mobile phone wasn't found in her bag and also Megumi used to carry around like a CD Walkman mm-hmm. with her everywhere and that wasn't present in her um, her bag. Um, there was, however, her credit card and a bus ticket that indicated that her last movements were in the complete opposite direction from where she was living in her accommodation to a BP service station. So she had purchased a SIM card for her phone and police were able to track her last calls and texts. Um, The last message that she had sent was actually to her ex-boyfriend who, funnily enough, lived like a really close distance to the BP station. So um, they – police obviously went – police then obviously thought, okay, Megumi's gone to that side of town to go and see her ex-boyfriend, but she had never made it there. Her ex actually wasn't at like he wasn't um, at the time. he wasn't in the air yeah he wasn't in the area at the time he had an alibi he was with a whole group of people and police in this episode of forensic investigation were like this guy did literally everything to provide us yeah. with information to help find Megumi so they you know obviously they were probably like look you got to work from the inside out like who do these people know like you know but they said no this guy wasn't in the area and he did everything to help find Megumi and oh this is like yucky so um he actually had also come forward to police in the days after of him being investigated because he had found in the area of where he was living a pair of underwear that he thought looked like they belonged to Megumi so um Police went to Megumi's accommodation and they found underwear that was similar styles to the ones that were found. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Megumi's um, underwear, she's not a basic bitch like us. Her underwear was like majority matching. Oh my god! Yeah. So like she her, had her shit um, together. She had her bloody shit together. Um, so with the underwear that they found, they weren't able to find the matching bra. Right. But DNA, DNA testing was done on the underwear and it was determined that they did belong to Megumi Suzuki. Oh. Um, so this like creeped police out. It was like the underwear, much like the police, uh, the patrol car mm-hmm. note, like literally just like popping up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Police were obviously appealing to the public for help in looking for Megumi. They were handing out flyers everywhere, especially around like clubs and bars and um, karaoke bars that Megumi often went to. Um, Her parents, Yoichi and Masako Suzuki, flew over from Japan and pleaded for their daughter to return home. They said, we love our daughter very much. We pray that in the coming hours there will be some positive news. So now we're at the 18th of August, 2001, when a member of the public actually reported that they had seen Megumi. And according to police, um, this person actually knew Megumi and was um, and knew her in regards to her accommodation and where she was staying. So dog, dog squads and officers went around the area of when she, where she was reported seeing and they were interviewing residences and like going into houses, trying to find like any trace of her. And unfortunately, um, they couldn't find her. So once again, Megumi's parents pleaded with her saying, um, don't worry about anything. Mother mother and father will protect you from now on. Like just. Oh God, my heart. Yeah. <clears throat> so even with the sighting of Megumi and um, Megumi's parents' pleas and stuff like that, Megumi never came forward. So um, eight weeks after Megumi had originally gone missing. Um, police, because we're in 2001, it's early days of you know, the internet as we know mm-hmm. it. Um, the, uh, the police created this missing persons website. Um, so as well as Megumi, Maya Jakic was featured on the site. And, you know, this was two years after Maya's um, murder. But um, police put the calls that were made from the hotlines up on the website and this was for anyone to listen to to see if that they could recognise the voice and luckily a man named Stephen Rust went on the website and listened to the voice and recognised the voice of his brother, Mark Aaron Rust. So... Rust was born in 1965 in Adelaide. He began following women at the age of 13 and was first convicted of sexual offences in 1983. He would go on to be convicted of between 11 and 13 sexual assault, sexual offences between 1983 and 1990, 1999, including gross indecency and an unknown number of other offences, including arson and trespassing. In 1992, at the age of 27, he was diagnosed with Klinefelter syndrome, um, which is a condition found in men which is caused by having two or more X chromosomes. So Rust's physical symptoms included infertility, shrunken genitalia, sexual and sexual difficulties. Right. Um, after his... Um, Dr. Linda Papadopoulos stated that his sexual offending likely evolved out of the enjoyment he obtained from shocking others with his unusual physique, particularly his shriveled genitalia. Um, a, uh, a psychic, uh, psychic, a psychic. <laughs> and psychic no. was like, Ooh, I no. think this guy's fucked up. Um, in 2004, a, psychi- a psychiatric report stated that he found it thrilling to masturbate in front of pretty women, mainly due to the reaction it would provoke from his victim. Um, so in June 1993, he was sent to prison for arson after he lit a fire in Kensington, which caused damage costing $642,000. Oh, my God. What? He was married twice. 
That's just not fair. <laughs> That's just Twice. not right. Both marriages had failed. Anyway, so back to his good brother, Stephen. Mm-hmm. So Stephen continued to listen to the voice. Now, I'm not saying like this guy like heard it once and was like, that must be my brother Mark. No, he's like, I listened to it half a dozen times. I stepped away from the computer. I went down the corridor of my house and I listened to the recording just to make sure that I could be sure that I thought it was him. Mm -hmm. And he said something important. He was like, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Like there's no damage done. Like it's fine. But he's like, if I'm right, then the police needed to know. Absolutely. So... At the time of Maya's uh, murder, Stephen had actually been away from Adelaide for a few years. So um, he wasn't around for for when the initial evidence of the phone calls was released to the public. Um, So can we – I don't have siblings, but I can empathise with people. Imagine listening to a voice and police are being like, hey, this voice is – probably the guy that murdered this woman. Mm -hmm. And I cannot imagine the dilemma inside Stephen Rust of being like like the inner turmoil of like implicating your own brother in in like a murder of a young person. So obviously Mark was known to police. Mm -hmm. Um, And Stephen to an extent was aware of Mark's history with the police, but he didn't actually know that um, Mark had gotten violent with women, but he said in the interview, he was like, look, the family was sort of aware, but we just didn't think it was going to escalate to where it escalated to the point that it did. Yeah. Yeah. So after talking with Stephen, police were convinced that the caller was Mark Rust, but that they didn't have enough um, evidence to make an arrest. Mm -hmm. So then once again, they turned to Stephen and were like, mate, we need a sample of Mark's handwriting to compare against the patrol note. Right. Patrol car note. Um, so Glenn Smith, who was the forensic handwriting expert, once again, picture a forensic handwriting expert in your head. That's what Glenn looks like. Very clever. Knows what he's talking about. Um, so he noted from the sample that um, Mark, that he noticed the sample that Stephen Rust had given him of Mark's handwriting towards the uh, and the patrol car note um, that there was on the T's on both of the samples there was like a double cross mm-hmm. on the T right, instead of just, just one. one so like looking like a telephone yeah. pole instead of just one um, and also like the spacing in some of the words like good and look. The O's, like the G to the O to the O, very, very, very close together. Mm-hmm. And like that was present on both of the samples. Um, and uh, Glenn Smith was like, I am pretty sure that the person that wrote the patrol car note is the same person that wrote this other sample. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was like, it was highly, it was highly likely that it was, it the was same. a match basically. It was a match. Handwriting was a match. But he did did the scientific thing of him being like, I think, not being like, I know. Not being like, it's fucking him, mate. Yeah. Um, So police felt that they had sufficient evidence to make an arrest um, in the murder of Maya Jakic. So when when police actually went looking for Rust, he was already in jail. Oh, how convenient for them. How convenient. He had... Um, it's so horrible. He had raped a woman at her workplace 
But the reason that this woman survived the attack, fucking hell, this poor woman, is because she pretended to enjoy the encounter. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah. You're a brave, brave woman. Jesus Christ. That is a survival tactic. That is... It, that is like fight or yeah. flight. And to be honest, like, I don't think I'd have oh, it in me. No. So mad props to you, doll. Like, fucking hell. Um, so Mark was then arrested in, um, in regards to Maya Jackich. And he di- wasn't saying anything. Mm-hmm. But he did that typical thing of... He got in prison and he found a fellow inmate and he confided in oh, them. Oh, classic. Little, little jailhouse snitch. Yeah, um, and then the inmate was like, "No, nah, I'm going to tell mm-hmm. the police." Well, obviously not to him. But He's like, "No, nah, mate, I'm, I, I'm just going to go tell the police." That's how you get stabbed. I'm just gonna, yeah. So, um, obviously, he said nothing to police. He came forward to his friend, and his friend said that um, Mark had seen this blonde woman on the side of the road. He accosted her, and a struggle ensued. Mark was working on his taxi. Um, Maya walked past and he asked her if uh, she wanted a lift and she declined. And then he asked, how about a route? And she declined again and she kept, she walked and she was walking really, really fast to a near bus, nearby bus stop. So then Mark climbed inside his cab. He drove off and he parked at the Paynham patrol base. Um, Maya was walking past. Ma- Mark then like dropped his pants and exposed himself to Maya but Maya was like, she didn't laugh or like she didn't like, she wasn't horrified mm-hmm. or like anything. She just laughed at him because, you know, how fucking ludicrous. Yeah. Um, as Maya turned away, Mark Rust grabbed her from behind with his pants still around his ankles and tra- like tackled her to the ground. Um, she, was stro- uh, she, was, she was choked and then also strangled with her own clothing. Um, so because of the information from this informant, police descended on mark rust's cell and then something that they found in mark's cell was a cd walkman that was oh ellen's reaction oh my god i'm freaking out yeah Yeah, so they had found they had um a cd walkman in his possessions um that was similar into in description to the one that belonged to megumi suzuki how could he have kept that and then be allowed to get into prison he's an idiot um so Megumi's mother was actually able to provide police with photos of the Walkman and serial numbers and they matched. Oh, my God. So um, the informant that went to police about Mark also had details of Rust's involvement in the his possible involvement, involvement into the um, murder of Suzuki. Um, he said that Mark approached Megumi at the BP station. Um, he struggled with her. He raped her. And he told her not to look at him, but she turned around and she saw his face and he attempted to strangle her. But when that wasn't working, he proceeded to hit her in the head with a rock until she died. Um, It was told to police that um, Megumi was killed on a vacant lot and that Rust had burnt her clothing and um, um, like paper and other stuff that was around was all like burnt on this vacant Mm lot. Um, So... Police went back to the BP service station where Megumi was last seen and directly across from it was a vacant lot and at um, this part of the vacant lot there was an evident there was evidence of like a seat of a fire. Right. 
So then they called the fire department because obviously someone would report a random fire at a vacant lot. At a vacant lot. And the fire department said that, yeah, the night that Megumi was last seen, the they had been called out to take out like to put out this fire in the vacant lot. Um so in the remains of the fire there was a rock that may or may not have been used in the murder. Um, there was also some bits of burnt clothing and arm and bracelets, and they were similar in appearance to the ones that um, Megumi wore. Okay, I'm not a police um, officer, and I don't know how to investigate a crime, but I feel like if somebody went missing, like near this BP, you do a 180, you see a vacant lot, you find out that there was a fire there around the same time. Like, I, I kind of but feel like some of this, some of these pieces should have fallen into place a little bit sooner. Maybe, but. I mean, you've got to think of, like, jurisdictions and stuff like that. Sometimes there's not a lot of communication between these True. things. I don't know. It's just it's, it's frustrating hard, that... It's hard to know. It's hard to know because, like, from, like, my chats with my stepdad and stuff like that... Who is a police officer. and Who is a police officer and who worked homicide for a really, really, really long time. But, no, he doesn't tell me anything, ladies and gentlemen, because it's work and also he doesn't want to talk about horrifying things when he comes home. You know, like talking about different departments and how they work and like how people relate to one another and stuff like that stuff just slips through and unfortunately when it comes to work like this people's lives are at Mm. stake so you know it's it's like you put it in the context of like another workplace it's just hard for my brain to accept that her body was like across from where they were looking for her this whole time oh you know the remains oh no her body no 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 she wasn't burnt she wasn't burnt what? there. No. Nah. Okay, maybe I... Strap in, mate. How can this get worse? Okay. So the only other information that they had on actually where Megumi's remains were is that Mark Rust had dumped Megumi into an industrial bin. So police were searching the area around the BP station to try and find a bin and they found one and um, they confirmed with the... Um, with the informant and the informant said that there was an elephant or like a rhinoceros or a hippo or something on the bin and that it matched the description of this bin. So obviously the evidence is like stacking high on Mark on the involvement in the suspected murder of um, Megumi. But a lot of this is still circumstantial because, you know, this informant could literally be making shit up or covering his own tracks or Mm. whatever. So they had to determine um, that the bin that they had found um, – so, yeah, there's, there's this weird bit where they said they were confirming it with the family. I, don't, I didn't really understand why the Rusts would know. Anyway, so they confirmed that was the bin. Mm-hmm. So then Megumi's family flew back from Japan and police described the Megumis having to, like, sit at this rubbish tip, like this dump, mm-hmm. and watch police go through literally thousands of tons of rubbish. Mm-hmm. So she had been discarded in the bin and then sent to the tip almost like four months prior. So they found the level of the bales of rubbish that it was likely for her to be in. So then they had to like pull the bales out, break them apart mm-hmm. And then basically start searching in the bales to try and find her remains. 
Um, so they were looking for things in the bales to make sure that they were on the right track. So you're looking at like newspapers to make sure like the date is around mm. the same time because then you don't want to be going further back or like further mm. forward or anything like that. So they're looking at newspaper articles, bills, letters, just to ensure that they were around the time. The time. Yeah. So um, – On the 7th of December, 2001, after 11 days of searching through tens of thousands of tons of rubbish, Megumi's body was found. So obviously there was a sense of relief that they had found her, but also like how did this 18-year-old girl get discarded in a fucking rubbish tip? Like it makes me – it makes me – Fucking violent. Do you know how far away the bin was from the BP when they say it was nearby? Did they say how nearby? Yeah, like within like oh, – it was like within a K or something. Oh, my God. K, a couple of Ks. Um, this like completely fucks me. So she still had clothes on. She was still wearing her boots and the bra that she was found in matched the underwear that was found. No way. Four months previously. That's incredible. What the fuck? Um, So the Suzuki said, we are relieved that our daughter was found. Thanks to the efforts of everyone involved in her search, it was not an easy task. It was a miracle that she was found so quickly. And Mark Rust was like, nah, I'm innocent. And he maintained that for a year. That's just so unbelievable. And then that year... Um, the year later after Megumi had been found, he changed his plea to guilty. And Stephen Rust was like, stop this. Mm. He's like, do not put the families through Mm -hmm. this. Put your hand up and admit what you've done because you have destroyed some fucking lives. Own what you have done. Um, So after he pleaded guilty to the murder of Megumi Suzuki, um, Mark Rust also also pleaded guilty in the case, in the murder of Maya Jackage. So after Maya's murder um they had to, um, Maya's uh, mother um moved back to Croatia mm-hmm. with the body of her daughter mm-hmm. um and so they weren't able to Maya's family weren't able to be um here in Australia for the victim impact statements yeah. of when the sentencing and stuff like that was happening um Megumi Suzuki's family weren't able to attend the victim um, impact statements but um uh, a sentence that I found from the impact statements that they sent were, can you feel a father's feelings that he will never again be called Papa? Oh, God. Oh, boy. Um, and then her mother also said, it makes me insane when I think of her being treated like rubbish. Seriously. And then, yeah, seriously. And then Ida Grigov, who I talked about earlier, who was one of Maya's friends, spoke on behalf of Maya's mother, Yagoda Jelic, when she said, why would anyone want to kill Maya like an innocent bird and cover her with branches and cover his dirty crime? So a suppression order was uh, put on preventing the media from naming the perpetrator of the murders, but it was lifted in May of, 2000 and th- May of 2003 after Russ pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and one count each of rape, assault and gross indecency. Mm-hmm. Justice Nyland subsequent- subsequently sentenced him to life without parole for the murders and a concurrent sentence of 12 years for the other um, offences. He showed little remorse for his crimes when asked why he killed Megumi Suzuki during psychiatric assessment. He replied... Because I did. 
On September 22, 2014, Mark Rust applied to the court to have a non-parole period imposed on his sentence, which would allow him to apply for parole and potentially be released from prison once the non-parole period had expired. (laughs) Prison authorities opposed the request, stating that he was aggressive and abusive towards prison prison guards, although Rust denied these allegations. Rust's counsel claimed that his whole life term made his imprisonment particularly difficult for his mental health. I don't give I a have shit. No sympathy for him. As of November 2017, the application is ongoing. In addition to his custodial sentence, Rust is also subject to an indefinite detention order imposed because he was declared incapable of controlling his sexual mm-hmm. urges. If he were made eligible for parole, the detention order would still his would still prevent his release from prison. Oh, good. So he's doubly in jail for life. So that was the murders of Maya Jakic and Megumi Suzuki. That had so many twists and turns and almost seemed like a story like the yeah it doesn't, it doesn't seem real seem does real. it it seems like you know obviously we cover a lot of cases that have a lot of like you know structure to them but that very much seemed like a murder mystery and i didn't like thank it. you forensic investigation yes thank you forensic investigation i don't like how many uh cases we've covered where it's like this man had a horrible history of raping and abusing women, but he was still allowed. Yeah, out and we've in brought this up. We've brought this up before about the parole periods, especially in Victoria, because yeah. they did really have a big problem with um, parole mm-hmm. and making sure that people stopped doing this shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want some harsher sentences for people that commit rape um, because they committed rape, yeah. and also. They're going to do other yeah. shit. They're going to escalate, especially people like Mark Rust who were incapable of controlling themselves. Exactly. And when it didn't go their way and women were trying to fight back, he fucking murdered yeah. them. The information was all there before a murder happened that he was not somebody that should have been out in public. Be in public. You know? no. The fact that sometimes, you know, in this case, in other cases we've covered it, and in other cases across the world, that people get, like, one, two, three, four-year sentences for rape, you know. Is absolutely is ludicrous. absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you look at that guy, um, I see, oh, I don't even remember his name. Um, the guy who murdered Jill Ma. Like, he had, what, like, yeah. 13, 15 previous um, charges against him for rape and assaults. In prison, you should be in and prison some, for life for that. Not to yeah. sound like, you know, some tough-on-crime politician trying to get re-elected, but you should be in... If you violate another person like that, you should not only be going to prison for a couple of years. That's the thing. It's violating. It's, it's, it's a, such a serious crime that is just not treated seriously in the criminal justice system a large percent of the time. But the thing that also drives me crazy about... Um, rape in general Mm -hmm. is like as soon as it happens it's not like someone suffering which is bad people suffering from like a coward's punch or Mm -hmm. something like immediately all the blame goes on like when someone gets like punched or something like that immediately it's like oh well that person was a bully like they you know they committed they committed that person's a murderer whereas like when a rape happens, they're like, oh, well, what were you wearing? There what were you doing? Yeah, Where were you? What time was it? circumstances for committing a rape. It's a crime. 
you know, it's a there fucking is nothing crime. that a victim does to warrant or to cause a crime like that. And, you know, two people could have, could still be alive if that person was put in prison for as long as he should have been. And so, so many people in general, even just in the cases we've covered, would still be alive if people were put in prison for the amount of time that they should have Exactly been. right. And that really, really angers me. So, yeah. I've never heard of that. I did not remember that case at all. I have, especially about Megumi, like as soon as I saw her photo mm-hmm. again, I was like, yeah, I definitely remember mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah. I don't know, like these cases around like the ni- like the late 90s, like early 2000s, like some of it's so visceral for me and I feel it like hitting me really hard because I just remember watching like programs about crimes at this mm-hmm. time, like with my grandparents and stuff like that. Like this was the most formative time in my true crime obsession because then after that it was just suppressed for mm. so long. So I have – I feel like it was the same when I did – um Oh, God, what's his name in Melbourne? Peter Dupas? Yeah, Peter Dupas. Like, as soon as I saw his photo, I I was like, I totally remember that guy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it just immediately hits me. Yeah, well, I don't know what I was doing from Um, 1999 to 2001 because I have no reflection. So, yeah. Oh, duh. So, yeah, I've been sitting on that case of Maya and Megumi for a little while. I'm I'm really glad I got to talk about Mm it. I mean, two women who, you know, who's – families entrusted that they were going to be safe Mm -hmm. like Maya came here as an immigrant and Megumi was here as a student like you hope that when you move countries that your children are going to be safe and happy Mm -hmm. and for this to happen to them is absolutely despicable and Mark Rust is an evil piece of shit and will never be released from prison hopefully and I am unbelievably proud of someone that I don't even know and that's Stephen Rust of coming forward and making that really, really difficult decision of, you know, implicating his brother in this because he knew that it was the right thing to do. I think that was really brave Mm -hmm. and really wonderful. And it just goes to show the importance of missing persons websites and making sure that if you do know something about any, like any crime Mm -hmm. that's been committed, even if it seems so minuscule, it is so important for you to come forward. Exactly. It is so and important. Sharing, no piece sharing of that information is so important because you never know who is going to see it. We recently shared exactly on our Facebook page about um, two girls who were missing. Some people said, like, why are you posting this? They haven't been murdered, which they weren't, and they were eventually found. No. But, you know, thank so God. that information, you know, if Stephen had been in the country or been in Adelaide at the time when those calls were first played on the news, who knows what could have happened, you know? Exactly right. Exactly right. And I def like I definitely didn't mean when I posted that article of the two girls missing, we definitely didn't want to imply that something horrible had happened to them. But Ellen and I have decided to, you know, if there are missing persons that cases that come up that, you know, if we can share them on our Facebook and just get people recognizing the images, because you never know. Mm-hmm. You never know. Um, yeah. So your turn in yes, a fortnight. Exciting, exciting. Um, so then that puts us at three. So then we've two got more. two more mm-hmm. after that. Stunsville. And then on to WA. And then, yeah, WA. It's a big so area. in your requests, say, folks. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, also, Zane, podcast producer Zane, informed us tonight that we've hit 8,500 subscribers. I really want 2,000 because I'm gr- a greedy bitch. Yeah, on, 
Add so, 10,000 um, you would give away or something special. So tell your friends. Yeah, um, maybe email in some things you would like us to do for the 10,000 giveaway. No, we will not do a nude calendar, according to Ellen, was, and also according to me. That was Jess's suggestion, and I just really don't find it on brand. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if enough people Definitely ask. not. You never know. But I do, um, Ellen and I have been talking about doing some, not nude photos, but just for some cool Mitlu photos soon. So we'll hopefully get those out. But yes, um, let's get to 10,000 subscribers. I feel like we deserve it. We work hard. I was up till midnight polishing this off last night, you know. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Your feedback, your engagement over Instagram and Facebook and our emails is amazing i mean if jess hadn't reached out the other week and i yeah and like i got to do such a special like it was so sad that ellen couldn't be there but you know she lives in tasmania i was like it's Um, fine i hope you had a good day (laughs) getting to meet people like dr geimer who you know are fighting the good fight and are doing amazing things for criminal justice and you know, it was an incredible moment. So the fact that shit like this is happening is so mm-hmm. wild and we're very happy and we're very grateful and we can't wait to bring you more episodes. So please tell your friends and donate to us on Patreon if you want. We do have uh, merch on Public. Yes, Dr. Geimer is our official model for Botany Solves Crime and he said that he was going to – he said we're going to hook all the people up in the herbarium. They're going to be looking with Botany very, Solves Crime. very nice in their Botany Solves Crime shirt. I just hope that they all get them in the different colours. I hope someone gets the burgundy. Yeah, be cute. Stunning. Well, thank you so much, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a good day. Goodbye. So what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.